What the actual fuck? What in the actual fuck? What the actual fuck? Good day and welcome to Table Talk Hot Takes. In this show, we examine all aspects of role-playing tabletop games through our particular and peculiar lenses. Thoughts, feelings, and of course, hot takes. My name is Professor Aria, and I am joined, as always, by... Professor Funky. Together, we've been playing RPGs for over 30 years and have a lot of heavily informed opinions based off of that. With that behind us, let's get straight into this week's topic, which you may have already guessed is weirdest RPGs. Okay, so I'm already going to back away from that a little bit because I realized just from us chatting this last week, we're going to do a part two. (laughs) To be clear, the ones that I have chosen are weird in a complimentary way, not a derogatory one. Yes, and I think that's really where I was coming from on this as well is like, this is something I found that is strange. It's small. It's not popular. I can guarantee that. And there's some cool stuff in here. But there's also some really weird stuff in here. Stuff that might make you say, for instance, what the actual fuck? Yes, precisely. Yes. (laughs) Perfect. Who should go first? So I kind of want to go first because I think mine is actually going to be less weird than yours. (laughs) So I am here today to talk about Terror 13. It was written by Eric Kugler in 2009 for his production company, Anansi Games, like Anansi the Spider. It's currently available on DriveThruRPG for free, and it seems to have been the only thing he ever wrote. It's definitely the only thing he and his company ever published. And as far as I could tell, I could not find anything else out about this guy. I only did a cursory Google search. I didn't deep dive into Reddit histories or anything like that, but I couldn't really find out anything about this game other than... The book, which I got from a used bookstore that just had it on the shelf. And I'm like, what is this? So I'm very much describing it as a heartbreaker. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term. Go ahead and explain it for our listeners. A heartbreaker is a definition of RPGs that are written by usually a single person or maybe a small team. And it was originally used to describe people who would go to Gen Con specifically And try and sell their RPG and would buy like 300 copies or 3,000 copies in some cases and sell like two. And it was a heartbreaker. You put your heart and soul into this creative process and then nobody cares. And this very much feels like a heartbreaker except that it was written in 2009. I absolutely despise a couple things with it and I think that's what really hurt him, unfortunately. (laughs) And the big thing is the font. He uses this font for the cover, like chapter names and character names and monster names and things like that inside the book. It is Crazy by Manfred Klein. It's it's actually a pretty standard font, but it is so inscrutable. If there was a monster description, I would have to look through the description to see what the monster is. Because the name is written in this insane font that is literally impossible to read. I'm not sure if you're looking it up, but it is nuts. But there's some really good design in here. And I think if A, Eric Kugler wasn't who he was, which at the time was effectively nobody, and if he'd maybe had some more marketing behind him or something like that, this could have been something real. Like, it could have been much bigger than it was. If it had also just kind of gone through an editing process, and that's a whole different problem that's very common in Heartbreakers. But he has writing and he has design inside of here that feels like it's from the 2020s. 
it is completely ahead of its time in so many ways. The beginning of the book is actually about bonds and the bonds between your characters and other characters, whether that be player characters, non-player characters, or anything else. And that is the most important thing about this game. This game is horror-focused. It is explicitly for telling horror stories. And really, horror movie stories is probably the biggest way that I would put it. It actually lays out in Chapter 2 all of the types of genre of horror that it could replicate and how to make that happen. And that includes everything from Victorian horror like Dracula to Yurei, which is the Japanese horror like The Ring or The Grudge or anything like that, all the way to slasher films to gothic horror and all these different genres. And it lays out each of those and says, okay, in this genre, you expect these things to happen. In a Yurei film, you expect there to be supernatural elements and you expect the heroes to not necessarily win, but if they do win, it's at great cost. Or like in slasher films, there is obviously a straight canon in how slasher films work. And it lays that out. And then it says, so when you're building your villain for one of those genres, here's how you should build that villain within these rules. It gives you the formula. Yes. And it says, hey, you're going to run a slasher game. This is what your players are looking for. And it examines genre through the lens of gameplay and through the lens of mechanics. And it's so smart. Like, this is 2020 design in 2009. And when you read this whole first chapter about Bonds, you know nothing about the game (laughs) other than that it's a horror RPG. But it's talking about the bonds between characters. Non-player characters also have bonds. And bonds and backgrounds are really the biggest innovation that this game makes. And that's that bonds and backgrounds are equivalent to skills in influencing your roles. Oh, that's super interesting. But you cannot change your bonds and backgrounds through experience. They are only increased or decreased through play. So the for instance that they use is your bond is loving mom. So if you were to roll to try and get your mom to lend you money, well, you would get to apply your bond to that because she loves you. Or if you were to be in combat and you were to say, I think about my mom and how if I die, she'll be super sad. Well, that now can go and boost your role. Alternately, let's say you are running away from a monster and the game master would get to say, so you start thinking of your mom. Your mom is now a negative on your role because she's distracting you from running. Right. Bonds go both ways. They go both ways. Same thing with backgrounds. Like you being in the Navy could boost things that would have to do with being a Navy that, but would also alternately decrease things that work against that. And similarly, any bond or background that you use too often, it'll start to decrease in helpfulness or hurtfulness. If you keep asking your mom for money, obviously, eventually she's going to stop helping you as much. So now it's not a plus five, it's a plus four or a plus three or a plus two or whatever. That is at once super intuitive, given the world that we live in. And also, it's super smart design to lead with that because it's such a core mechanic, it sounds like. It is. This is basically the core mechanic of the game. You have attributes, skills, bonds, and backgrounds. And all of those individually can give you a up to plus five on a roll. So having a bond and a background could actually be better or equivalent to having a attribute and a skill at max level. 
it is exactly the same weighted wise. Perfect. I love that. Yeah. And especially, again, for a horror game. And this is where it gets into some really interesting stuff, because these bonds and backgrounds have the ability to turn into obsessions through play. So bad things happen. Any bond or background that you have at five, which is the max level, can become an obsession. It can then no longer go lower, and it is much more likely to be negative for you because your bond or background changes. So your background is no longer Navy veteran. It's obsessed Navy veteran. The dude at the bar who's like, I was in the Navy to literally everything. Like that is your entire personality. And that's the only thing that defines a villain versus a player character is villains have obsessions. Yes, I love that. That works so well with the theme. And also that is very much mechanically representing what we would see in a horror film, in a horror movie. Exactly. So suddenly your slasher villain is not really any different than a player character. They probably have more points because obviously Jason can survive way different things than the teens at camp can. But similarly, they have these obsessions that can be exploited. And if you exploit it, you're going to give them negatives. And the other big difference, but it's not really a difference because anything that a player character can do and non-player character can do and vice versa, is the non-player characters, the villains specifically, get access to dark powers. And these dark powers manifest as part of having an obsession. So you can't get a dark power if you don't have an obsession. And again, villains always have obsessions, so they always have the possibility for dark powers. But there's nothing stopping your player characters from having an obsession and thereby having a dark power. That makes sense. You start to become an anti-hero, then you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Exactly. Before I get into conflict, the other thing that really bugs me about this game is it uses very general words. So all nouns that are not people are capital S stuff. So if you have things in your car to fix the car, you have car fix stuff. And trying to define out like, oh, do you have a wrench? It's just like, oh, I have car fix stuff. It's fine, but this game takes it maybe a little bit too far. So, like, all roles are conflict. Now, should you be rolling if you're not in conflict? Eh, probably not. Can we generalize things as just stuff? Sure, fine, whatever. But, like, negative consequences, physically, emotionally, whatever, are bad things. I'm really not a fan of that sort of generalness. I think it results in confusion at the table. It resulted in confusion in me trying to explain it. Because in bad things, I was trying to say, like, all bad things are bad things. Sure, that's fine. But what if I'm in a game and a villain says to you, you better help me or bad things are going to happen to your family. And it's like, well, is it bad things or is it bad thing? Right. When your vocabulary overlaps with common terms and you are co-opting normal parts of speech, that becomes a little dicey. I'm just not a fan. It kind of bothers me. The whole all roles are conflict. And it's like, eh, but eh, uh, okay, fine, whatever. Moving on. So conflict. Conflict is only for advancing the story. And this is something it emphasizes pretty heavily and writes a good amount about. The example that it uses that I really kind of like is, let's say your player character is running from a slime monster and you have to climb over a fence. You don't roll against the fence you roll against the monster. And it says this in a very clear way. It says, conflict should only occur when it matters. 
Climbing the fence is not the important thing. The slime monster is. Right. Again, very 2020 design, very interesting idea. It makes a lot of sense. It is encouraging you to run from the monster instead of focusing on, well, you need to make a climb check. You need to do athletics. You need to see if you can get away from it in this random way. And it's like, no, this is a horror film. We know that you can get away, but we're going to see if you do. Yeah, it's not about you climbing the fence. It's does the slime monster catch up to you? Well, if it does, then we can write that as you don't climb the fence or you keep trying and get distracted or whatever. And now this allows me as Game Master to negative some of your backgrounds and bonds and you to add some of your backgrounds and bonds and to apply all that sort of stuff. See, again, stuff. This, this, anywho. I'm going to try and get off of that. The other big thing that it does, and this is definitively the most forward thinking that Eric Kugler gets in this book, in conflict, the second step of conflict is setting the stakes. What do you want to happen here? So first step is initiate conflict as occurring. The second step is set stakes. So I'm running away from the slime monster. All right, if I succeed, I get away. And the game master then says, okay, if you don't succeed, the slime monster catches up to you and eats you. And so you know, before the roll happens, what the stakes are. And that is such good design because it's a very modern thing, but I think it's a really good thing. Is this role important? Because if the GM can't come up with some stakes that are worthy enough of a role, then it, it doesn't matter. We only roll conflict for advancing the story and only when it matters. Right. And by knowing the stakes ahead of time, you can have players make informed decisions on how much they care about this, how much they really want to push themselves, how much, how many resources they want to throw at this, if they want to use their big bond and risk it becoming an obsession, because it's really important that they succeed. Exactly. The example that it uses is two different characters going through exactly the same scene and how the scene could play out differently depending upon their approaches and what specifically they're rolling and thereby what the sort of consequences of that role would be. And it's very intriguing that way. Next point about this game, the writing, it's very congenial. One of the things that I'm not crazy about, it's as if Eric Kugler is speaking to you, the reader. But unfortunately, because I think, I don't know this obviously, but I think Eric was in the RPG space for a very long time and kind of got burnt out <laughs> on some things. His writing can feel a little condescending. He mentions frequently about reasonableness, uh, like making sure the consequences of your actions are reasonable. And it just kind of feels like he's had some really bad players in his time. If I succeed on this role, then my I-beams get to destroy the monster. And it's like, what I-beams was the specific example that he gives. And it's just kind of like, okay, you had a bad player in the past that made you think this. The exact example I want to pull out, and this is a direct quote from the book. Michael decides that he wants to play a female psychiatrist with a new post at a hospital in London. He tells this to Eric, the narrator, who smiles and nods, saying that would work well in the story he has in mind. Michael sits down and looks at his character sheet, which Eric was kind enough to print out for him ahead of time. Yeah, this sounds like a playtesting session gone horrible. Yes, it's the like, which Eric was kind enough to print it out for him ahead of time, hinting without just stating, hey, you should print character sheets for your players. When I read that sentence, I said, yep, this is the RPG I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. 
it really reads like some guy who was really sad about the way that a player treated him or something that happened in his past. And it's like, man, don't let that get into your game. Keep your life separate. So next little bits, it gets into occult skills. So obviously it talks through your attributes. What do they mean? What do they represent? Talks through the skills. What are the skills in this game? Why do they matter? What skills should you use for that? Things like that. Pretty standard RPG stuff. And then it gets into the occult skills. And this, I think, is a really intriguing idea. The occult skills obviously are only available if the Game Master gives you permission to have them. But they allow the players to do things that a game would not normally allow you to do. Like, you can see the timeline of the villain. You could have tarot as a skill, and you can divine the future and see, okay, on this date, the villain's going to try and do this. And on this date, the villain's going to try and do that. Or you can reveal the villain's identity. All kinds of things. Each occult skill is unique and actually does different things. Tarot, for instance, can reveal secrets and and can reveal the future. Astrology can also reveal secrets in the future, but they reveal different things. So tarot can reveal to you the timeline of the villain, but astrology could show you what sort of powers they have. And that is entirely up to your game master what skills they allow you to have, and it's entirely up to you as a player what skills you want. Right. It's a character customization. It's like this bonus power that you can get, but requires additional investment. And the rewards might be worth that. So, Right. And the occult skills are all like tarot, demonology, astrology, pseudoscience, stuff like that. And basically, they all allow you to break the rules in some way or another. But again, it's all up to the GM to allow you to have it. And it's up to the player. Like, does this fit my character? The female psychiatrist with a new post in London probably isn't into astrology and pseudoscience, but maybe she believes in tarot for some reason. That's a really interesting idea. Now you have to say and explain, why do I have this extra cool power? And I have to ask on this, is there another mechanical cost or is this just a skill? It is just a skill, actually. You purchase it exactly the same as any other skill. The game definitely incentivizes the Game Master to give these things. It seems like it wants you to have this ability, but it does mention in each of the genre breakdowns, like in this genre, your characters should probably not have occult skills, things like that. But in most of them, it does say they can have one occult skill at level one. So it it doesn't seem to really incentivize you to say, hey, go crazy. You can be the son of the greatest witch doctor that ever existed. This game really does try to emphasize the idea that your characters are just normal ass people, except obviously in the right kind of horror where it's not. Right. I'm just trying to think about, I don't know if I would do this without some kind of cost. Like, at least the monster gets a little bit closer. They know a little bit more about you or something along those lines. I could 100% see that. And actually, that brings me to my next section. And I think this is why that's not necessarily true. Um, terror level is a big part of this game. So every scene, every session, every kind of everything has a terror level between 0 and 13. If you're a terror level 13, the villain gets to end the world. Everything is so messed up. It doesn't matter what you do. You lost. 
And a lot of this game is kind of managing that terror level. Like, the villain does things that allows them to just increase it. So they have their machinations, and those machinations take time. And then once they complete that machination, the terror level increases some amount. And so your main thing as players is you need to stop the terror level from increasing. The more terror level increases, the more powerful of dark powers the villain gets and can use, and the harder it is for the players to succeed on rolls. So there are certain points where the terror level then says, okay, well, all your players' actions get minus four now instead of minus three. And that, it doesn't seem like it's a huge deal, but it's still a minus. Yeah, I still follow. And I guess having that ratchet up, that makes sense. Having a mechanical way to increase the stakes of the plot as a whole instead of just the scene. I still don't know. I think that with these scrying spells and seeing the future and other things like that, yes, I would use those as maybe plot hooks to drive the plot forward, but I still, it feels like those should come at some sort of narrative cost. I, and I could absolutely see that. I am intrigued. It doesn't have anything written about that, though I could 100% see like, hey, if you have an occult skill, you have to start with a possession or something like that. Or... Whenever you use an occult skill, I get to make something an obsession. Or I get to give the the villain 10 experience points or something like that. Take a Blades in the Dark and say the clock advances or something. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually the interesting with Terror Level is it's almost a Blades in the Dark clock. It actually emphasizes timelines and say, like, at this point, the terror level increases, things like that. And because depending upon the type of story that you're telling, if it's it cosmic horror, for instance, then you've got to get up to a pretty high terror level before the villain really reveals their plan completely. Because they're not going to get to summon Yogg-Sothoth at terror level 6. they got to get up to terror level 13. But alternately, if you're just playing a investigate the crazy mansion story, well, then maybe the terror level only goes up to 4. It's actually a pretty short campaign, or that sort of thing. That makes sense. So last little bit here has a pretty good example of play. I sort of mentioned this earlier. So it presents a scene in a coroner's office where two characters, and that is the female psychiatrist that I mentioned earlier and her ex-Navy brother. I kept bringing up Navy because the, the book mentions it frequently. Those were clearly the two example characters that the writer was really leaning on. And so it lays out the scene of they both need to get information from the coroner about a dead body that was found the night before. Well, okay, how are they going to do that? How do those different pathways lead to this? How does the conflict function? It's pretty gamey, I will say that. The conflict in general, it really emphasizes before you make a roll, you kind of pause for a moment and say, okay, you're initiating conflict. What are the stakes? And so you kind of pause for a moment, set up that game part of the game, roll, see what happens, and go from there. And so I think it's a very good idea because the gaminess leads to interesting interactions, but it is still very gamey. It's still very like, okay, pause, roll the dice, then move on with the story. It also can interrupt the flow a little bit, depending on your table. And I think that's one of the main problems with this system. Like I said, at the time, with proper marketing, I think this game could have been much bigger than it was, but it didn't have that. But it was really forward-thinking in a lot of those ways. And that kind of brings me to my ultimate conclusions. I would much rather steal from this system than play it. 
I think there are better systems out today that are doing what it does better. But there's some interesting ideas. The idea of cause of villainy is just backgrounds and bonds going wrong. Those are really the cause of a villain. Such a great idea in horror. And then, like, setting stakes to the conflict, the Game Master having to kind of meet certain conditions to do bad things to the players, that's pretty modern design, and I really like it. But again, I'd much rather play, I don't know, I'm not much of a horror game person, but I'm certain that there are systems out today that can do what this is doing maybe a little bit better. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like there's a lot of great ideas that, just had the mechanics bolted around them though i do love some of the design aspects especially leading with bonds and those concepts and being like no these are 100 percent going to be role played out it all is very cohesive which says a lot but like you said there's also clunky bits which detract from the experience unfortunately and are also pretty common in heartbreakers in a game like this where it's just one dude writing a game, writing 300 pages worth of stuff, and choosing a horrific, and I don't mean that in a good way, even though it's a horror game, font. <laughs> yeah, that's also very unfortunate. Well, that's what I've got for this week. So, Arya, what nonsense did you find? Yeah, so I've got a couple of things for us. Mine are almost like a lightning round because I have less to say about them, if that makes sense. The first one I'm going to start with is a one-pager called Totally Real Human Adults. This is by Chris Legg and MAD. And yeah, it's for two to ten players. You play as a stack of creatures in a trench coat. God damn it! That's exactly it, yeah. And you perform a variety of human tasks. It's stuff like your campaign is going to be like holding down an office job. Going to the movies, going to the mall, stuff like that. Oh, no. I kind of love this because it's very simple design and it's just stupid and fun. And I love it. First thing, you start with a credibility rating. This is a health bar. Starts at 8, can go up to 10. If you roll really well on checks, you can somehow be more credible. But Yeah, that makes sense. Then you are just going to pick a stat array. You've got five stats, which are stuff like communication, coordination, athletics, influence, know-how, and stealth. Fairly standard reskins of Dungeons & Dragons-esque attributes. And super easy to assign. One starts at three, two are at two, two are at one, and one's at zero. But here is where I love it. So every creature that every player is playing has a special ability. So a raccoon has the little grabber's ability. The crab or the lobster has the snips. The opossum's special ability is screaming. Oh, capybaras. <laughs> they have chill vibes. Yes, I love it. I'm just trying to stop laughing. <laughs> The other thing that is amazing is that you can change the order of the stack. It is encouraging you to be like, okay, who is the legs? Who is the torso? Who is the head? The creature at the head is most responsible for communicating with other people. Uh The torso creatures are good for using their little hands or maybe a hand on a stick. And then the bottom ones are your locomotion people. So, yeah. Of course. And here is what pushed it over the line for me. 
This has rules for a PvP mode or a competitive mode. No. Yeah, the player can split into two teams, each controlling a different stack of animals, and the best, the one to do better at their job, or maybe they're doing some kind of race or scavenger hunt or something like. I have almost never seen a explicitly PvP game, even these goofy ones. Yeah, no, not explicitly. Like, I've seen, oh, you're all trying to finish the same task, and there's a winner, quote-unquote. It's still kind of a non-zero-sum game. I really do love it, and I am trying to do things that have a little bit more mechanical differences than just, this is a really weird setting, because I have found some stuff with really weird settings. (laughs) Actually, I'm just going to name one. I saw one that was called Viscoths versus Molgoths. It was billed as a RPG and dating sim where you can play a Viscoth time traveling from 41080 or a Molgoth from the 80s or 90s. So, yeah, I hate that. I can't say anything. I ran a blink in GURPS, which is about sentient psychic dolphins from another planet. So, red. I also didn't have much to say about about that one either so we'll just move right along (laughs) ah gosh my second quick one is something called rod reel and fist i chose this one because there are two systems that are described in this particular rpg there is catching fish and animal combat that's it there are lots of rules for different kinds of fishers you're going to do, what your temperament is, what your fighting style is, your secret fishing techniques. It's yeah. just Angry Dad the game? It's not Angry Dad because the setup is there is a legendary fish. Naturally. That you need to catch because it will grant whoever catches it a wish to save your ailing uncle or brother. Or maybe you want to take over the world. Oh my god. The impressive thing about this is its length. This is this is 284 pages. <laughs> <laughs> and it includes some alternate settings. That's longer than Terror 13. It is. And it's it's great. <laughs> they have one called Fish of the North Star. No. <laughs> yeah, it gives you exactly what it's about. And I am just like, this is so incredibly specific. And it is extraordinarily realized by being a game that is that narrow in scope. Wait. Wait. Okay, I haven't looked it up. But is this published by... Uh, I think it's called Plus One Games. I don't believe so. Yeah, this is by Ian Hamilton and Richard Kelly. It's probably a more independent publishing. Plus One's pretty small, but they released Heckin' Good Doggos, if you've heard of it. I have Um, not. Heckin' Good Doggos, like, the game could be 10 pages, it's almost 100 because they spend 80 pages going through other variations of heckin' good doggos, such <laughs> as superheroes doggos or post-apocalypse doggos. And, of course, they're all named other doggy-ish puns. Oh, no. He writes Morkborg spinoffs. He writes 
Bisqueborg, Cthorkborg, Borkdborg, which is apparently a dog. Borkthorg. No, God. Workborg. Oh my God, I love that. What the fuck? Borkbug. Okay, nope. It's definitely not the guy who wrote Beck and Good Doggos. No, it's they did other things. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. I have one more thing okay. that I want to share with you. So, Professor Funky, from our previous conversations, I know that you are at least familiar with fan fiction. Oh, yeah, I, I was on fanfiction.net in its heyday. I know one of the people who was sued by Anne Rice, actually. Oh, one of my best friends. Excellent. Wait, no. I was going to bring up a specific fanfic called Evangelion and Warhammer 40k. I actually don't think I know this one. Okay. Yeah, if you were a user of TV tropes between 2007 to 2009, you would see this everywhere. Or at least I'm taking you on the experience of how I found this game. Oh, God. So, yes. In that fanfiction, Shinji has a happier childhood, he has Warhammer figures, and stuff just gets completely out of hand. It's like, it's very good if you are okay with Gurren Lagann-style constant ramp-ups, and yeah, the prose is very good. However, there is a spin-off game that has apparently got some updates since I originally downloaded it, but as I was going through my RPG folder... I saw that I downloaded this Christmas Eve of 2009. So that is the time period this is made. Mm-hmm. What this game is, is this is a total conversion for Dark Heresy, which is a Warhammer 40k RPG. Yep, I, I'm aware of Dark Heresy, yes. Cool. What that does is it overlays character creation to be an Evangelion pilot, from Neon Genesis Evangelion, including sections on how to build, customize your sync ratio, how angels can damage you. It is giving you this incredibly specific system to play in this fanfic. And it is 260 pages long. Jesus Christ, (laughs) y'all. Right. I am bringing this up here as my finisher because I think that this is actually amazing. Oh, okay. That we have folks that are dedicated to our hobby to put down multiple versions of this very long game for another game. Fair, yeah. You would not normally get something like that in a lot of other hobbies where we will just take these things and then release to the community for free gigantic source books doing gigantic things i'm sorry i just pulled up the tv tropes page and it's just a picture of shinji on the god enderer throne that is about correct yeah i don't know if it ever got finished at least whenever i was reading it i was reading it as it was coming out and I think that there was a case where they low-key wrote themselves into a corner, and we'll just see how that goes. Uh, To be fair, like most fanfics. Oh, no, story was declared finished in 2019 at 791,000 words. That sounds right. Great, well, I know what I'm going to do this evening. 
And then much like Ava was rewritten to be shorter, darker, and with a different evolution of Shinji as Thousand Shinji. So much like Evangelion has had a a rewrite that's better. (laughs) Fair. That's amazing to me. But yeah, I've got this OG build from, like, I don't know, like, I don't see a release number anywhere on here. Jesus. This is just a PDF that I have grabbed from that particular date. The most recent thing that I saw was a beta draft of, I think that was like version 5 or something. But yeah, I was able to find that on a very dead subreddit. Like, this is a game that doesn't have a huge player base, if anybody. It's pretty much unheard of, but again, it's giving a super specific experience for a fan fiction. It's a subset of a subset of a subset, and there's so much love there. Yes, it takes dedication, and I guarantee there are people out there who are like, man, I fucking love this world. I'd love to play a game in that. And then they super appreciate that this dude was like, I'm going to put in the work to make this a thing. Oh, yeah, it was not just one dude. What the fuck? Oh my god, it's even featured in the Giant in the Playground forums. Jesus Christ, this is insane. Yeah, it definitely took off at one point. So. Wow. Yeah, this reminds me of another one that I was thinking about talking about, but I didn't have the time to get the research ready on. Uh, have you ever heard of Worm? It's a it's an I original. Have. Yeah, the whole like fucking novel. I mean, beyond a novel, it's like twelve novels. So Weaver Dice was actually an RPG system, as far as I can tell, made by a fan along with help from the original author and allows you to run superhero stories in the world of Worm. All right. That gotta yeah. be rough. <laughs> it's, it's intriguing. It is mostly intriguing because as far as I could tell, I didn't get in to do enough research on this. This will come back up in another episode, but it you make trigger events for how your powers happen. And then those are bet on amongst the players to see who gets which trigger event. So you literally bet character build points to say, no, I want that trigger event. That's super neat, actually. It's really interesting. It's super weird. But that'll be one we come back to later. Okay, so did you have anything more for this installation of weird RPGs we've found? No, but I do have plenty left in the chamber. <laughs> put okay. it that way. Yeah. So let's get ready to do a part two soon. Maybe not next week, because I've got some work to do before I do more. Yeah. And I also had a possible topic for next week. So did I. What are you thinking? I was thinking whenever I was researching these weird RPGs that I found some that had really weird resolution systems. And we can maybe put an episode out for that. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about resolution systems. Why they're important, what they are, what they do, and why some are super, super strange. And yeah, I've got a banger of one. Little preview for next time. (laughs) Okay, and I'll see if I can find some weird ones as well, because I'm sure they exist in my library. My thought, and this is going to be a long-running series is because you brought it up that you were heavily into TV tropes back in the day, and I was as well. And my thought would be reading through the TV tropes of RPGs that we know, <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> oh my uh, but God. that was a running series. Let's hold off on that. So next week, resolution systems, what are they? Why do they exist? Why are they important? And what are some strange ones we found? Sounds great. Fabulous. Love it. 
All right. Well, Arya, as usual, get us out of here. Yeet.